And you can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 will be in verse 8 as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Let's ask God's blessing upon our time. Dearly Father, as we stand amazed at who you are, as we stand amazed that you would give us your word, the beacon of truth and light into this world, help us as we study it to understand the slim difference but vast difference there is from truth and error. And how quickly, because of our human way of thinking, we are so prone to take the truth and to manipulate it and twist it, even the slightest way, and we find out that we have fallen into gross error. So, dearly Father, help us to get back, back to the truth of your word. Forgive us for the times we wander, that we make grace something that we have earned. We make grace something that it never is and never was. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen. If you really want something, and I've said this to my kids multiple times when they would sit there and say, Dad, I want this, I want that. I'd look at them and say, if you really want something, you've got to earn it. You know, don't just expect it to be given to you. If you have been raised in an American culture, which all of us have been, but some more steep than others, you have been taught that you do not need help. You've got this. I don't know how many times I've watched my kids when they were trying to tie their shoe, and I'd be like, you want me to help? No, 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 I got this. And it's very clear they do not have it. But at the time, they're going, I got this, Dad. I don't need your help. And you're like, yes, you do, as they're grabbing that hot pot off the stove, and it's shaking back and forth. And you're like, no, you don't. But that internal nature, we've got it. If someone gives you a gift, sometimes it is hard for us to receive gifts because then, in a way, you feel like you owe them something. So I don't accept any gifts, you know, don't give me a gift because then if you give me a gift, like, I owe you something, and before you know it, now we're playing this back and forth, you give me a gift, so that means what do I need to do? Run out and get a gift? I mean, this happens every Christmas, right? All of a sudden, some of you give you a gift, and you're like, oh yeah, yours is almost here. It's still at the store, but it's almost here, you know? And all of a sudden, you're like, oh boy, we got to run out and get a gift because no one wants to have the I owe you one. And then the great life lesson... When you see the sign that says, lunch is free today, what do we all want to teach our kids? There is not, does not exist. Someone had to pay for that lunch. Lunch is not free, right? And we, but we all in our own mind love to say these things. We love to look at these things and say, no, we've got this. And then my favorite non-biblical line. This is not in the Bible. I want to be very clear. This is not in the Bible. But the most quoted Bible verse that is not in the Bible. All right. And I'll quote the Bible verse that is not in the Bible. All right. But we all quote. Not we all, but there's a lot of people that do. Here we go. Let's see if you can finish it. God helps those help themselves. That is not in the Bible. I want to be clear. That is not a Bible verse. Because even in of its saying... That God helps those who help themselves, literally you've already helped themselves, what does that not mean then? You don't need God's help because what have you just done? I've done it. But we love to make phrases like that because at the end of the day, we want to be the captain of our own soul. And so if I really want God's help, what do I need to do? I get the thing started and then God's going to help me out, all right? As if God now owes you one. 
because the non-biblical verse that is not in the Bible, which I don't even know if non-biblical verse even makes sense, but it's not there, all right? So when someone's ready to quote it, you already know, you just look at them and say, can you give me the chapter and verse on that one? So as we've been walking through these five solas, as we take this uh, month of October to, to pause and look at the, the way that we are, as a, as a Bible-believing church, it is Scripture alone is the authority of our faith and practice. It is by faith alone that we are saved. And now today we're going to be looking at it is by grace alone that we are saved. I want to look at a very, very, very key passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, 8. It's a very short sentence. And it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved. So we have to deal with the question. The questions that come all the time. The question that is in front of the church in front of us. It doesn't matter what place you go. If you claim to teach the Bible, there's a question that is asked to you. It doesn't matter across denominations. The question is this. How is a person saved? And how does a person maintain their status before God? Now that is the responsibility of anyone who picks up the Bible and is about ready to communicate the truth to God's Word. Now it doesn't matter where you are in the whole spectrum of we call Christianity. That is a question that every church, every cathedral, everybody else is answering that question. And how you answer that question... You're either going to answer it according to the Bible, which brings us back to sola scriptura alone, or you're going to answer it according to all these other things that are there. Because at the end of the day, the Bible very, 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 very clearly teaches that God is holy, and in order to be with God, you must be holy. Or you are not with God, because holiness cannot be with not holiness, or sin cannot function. And so the question in front of the church is, how do you get man who is not holy to be with holy God? Literally, this is what the whole Bible teaches. And then the question is, how do you maintain that holy status? If you do X, Y, and Z to get holy, how do you maintain that holy status until you get to heaven? So, like, if someone becomes holy now, how do you get there, and how do we get to the end? So, if we can do this to make you holy, how do we keep that holiness all the way to the end is the question that is there. And so, we look at the text in front of us, and it says, For by grace you have been saved. This word, for there, carries with it a cause the cause of your salvation, and then we have the effect. So the cause of your salvation, we have the effect, of, the effect is salvation. So how is someone saved? And the text tells us by grace. Is grace being the cause, the effect is salvation. All right, and so the question is, in front of us all, how do you get this grace? If you want to be saved, how does this grace happen? For by grace you have been saved. Well, I want to be saved, so let me get this thing called grace. And now remember, as I've told, talked to you about this, the line from error and truth can be very slim, but after year and year and year of shouting the error, you can go very far into error. And so what has happened in very early on in church history, the church tried to answer this question. And I would say because of, remember during the time where the early church 
was under great persecution, and all of a sudden you get Rome now comes in, and Rome, with all of its way of thinking, comes in and now makes Christianity the official doctrine of the Roman Empire, and it just, corruption just exploded all over the early church. And so then the answer was not found in the Bible. The answer was this. The answer to how does a person maintain their salvation and how does a person stay saved, they came up with this small little, sta- small little word, but it's in very powerful, is a sacrament. The church says there are certain sacraments you can do. And what is a sacrament? A sacrament are works a person does in order to be saved and remain in a state of grace. Because it is by grace you have been saved, so I need to stay in a, in a place of grace as well as this is the work that needs to be done in order to be saved. Now again, this was taught over and over and over again, generation after generation after generation in the church, and before you know it, it one error was built on another error and another error, and before you know it, we've gotten to the point of where we are. But it did not happen by mistake. The only way you can pawn off sacrament is by having a group of people who have no idea what the Bible says. Because what we're going to see as we walk down through these sacraments, it sounds Bible, but it's not Bible. Just like God helps those who help themselves. I'll be honest with you, that doesn't sound Bible at all, but to a non-Bible reading person, that sounds pretty scriptural. All right. And so what can happen is we can all of a sudden go down this path, and we see it in our society right now. Because my daughter Catherine is growing up in a world where she has got a new right that I didn't even know existed. And I'll give you this right. And this was a right that I didn't even know existed at all until my early 30s. And here's a right that all of a sudden now you believe we have. It's the right to affordable health care. That is a God-given right now in our society as we tell everybody, you have that right. And I'm like, I never knew I had that right. Well, now you do, because guess what? We just decided you have that right. And now the audacity of someone to say, you can't afford to have that health care. Well, you have the right to have it. And you're going to go, is that one of those inalienable rights that God gave us? You know, and now all of a sudden we wrestle with this. And even in our mind, you're going, I can tell you how many other rights you all have that you didn't even know you had. And we can slowly creep into error when you're going to go, wait a minute, those are not rights. Those are just things that you just think you have now, and error can sweep us away. So the church then, as we're all all under point number one, the error, the church says this, we want to help people go from birth all the way to death and stay in the grace of God. And so what the sacraments are going to do, they're going to walk us through literally from life all the way to death. And how do we keep people in the grace of God? So I'm going to go down through them really quickly. And these sacraments, by the way, are grace from God you receive by just doing it. All right, so to give you an example, what I mean by that is sacraments are automatic. If you're literally in the room that Mass is taking place and you put the food in your mouth, you are literally getting that grace whether your mind and body and mind is there or not. As long as you go through the motion of it, you get it automatically. All right, and so what we see is, and I'll just fly down through these here, the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. So remember, these are lifelong, entire lifelong sacraments. So obviously the first one then would be baptism. You are born and you are baptized. And what this baptism means, so we're baptizing obviously infants at this time, and we're dealing with washing away of original sin, which with, carries with it salvation and even a concept of regeneration. It is making you new. So this baptism, when we baptize an infant, it is now a salvific event 
in the Roman Catholic Church, washing away of original sin. Now, it's interesting that in, this is a little bit church history, so stay with me here. So the Reformation comes, it is just going hard, hardcore power flowing through, people reading their Bible, and all of a sudden the Roman Catholic Church has got to respond. Like, what are you going to do with all of these people in Germany and everything else that are basically thumbing their nose at us and saying, we're reading the Bible? And the Roman Catholic Church has a council where they get everybody together called the Council of Trent. I'll let you figure out where the Council of Trent was. It's in Trent, all right? And so in the Council of Trent, this is a response to the Reformation. And you would think when they said, when they got to the point is, what is the cause, the instrumental cause of your justification, of your right standing before God? All of us would think they double down and say faith and works. Actually, they didn't say that. You know what they said? What is, your just, what is the cause of your right standing before God? They said baptism. Because baptism puts someone in the right standing before God. Not found in Scripture, but baptism. You baptize them? Because remember, remember, it's just happening to you, right? The baby's not there confessing anything other than I'm wet and cold and crying, all right? But as long as it happens to you, now all of a sudden you are saved and regenerated. But now we have to deal with, what about this inclination the people have still to sin? Because like babies, if you spend two seconds with a baby, you'll realize that they can be angry and ornery and everything else that comes with it. So what do we do with this inclination to sin? Well, they answered this. Well, what we're going to do, the church says, because we've got to deal with what when people fall into sin, things like moral, mortal sins that commit, that be committed, that can destroy what baptism did. They said we need some other things. So they added this thing called confirmation. Confirmation can be done whether in a class setting where you learn all about the church or of some nature where you're getting all this information given to you. And once that information is given to you, the leader of the church then looks at the person and basically says you're good to go. What this would be is the increasing of your grace to maturity. Um, another way, as someone one time said, it's like an energy booster of grace given to the people. And then once you get this confirmation, once the church it says you're ours, you're then good to go. Uh, it was very interesting watching this play out on uh, my son's track team over in Spencer. You had two different groups. You had more of your Protestant evangelical group, and you had a little bit of the Lutheran uh, Catholic group over here. And the, on every Wednesday night, there was a group of kids that didn't go to uh, track practice because they were going to confirmation class. And then the more evangelical Protestant group was over here. And the guys that got, conform, uh, got um, their confirmation, they went, oh, good, we don't have to go to church again. And they looked at my son, they're like, you go to church because you like want to? We couldn't wait to get confirmed. The church would say we're good to go, and then we're out of there. We're never going to church again because the church just said you're good to go. And it was just interesting that wrestle that was there. Not only once you're confirmed, then we add to it, we take communion, which God has given to the church, and we make that a saving event. And so when the bell rings and in the teaching of the Catholic Church that the, the bread and the wine become the actual body of Christ, in partaking that, that is what gives you saving grace that keeps going on because you continually need saving grace because there was no point that... You could, if you commit a sin, you kind of go backwards again, and now you need the grace to continue moving on. Even moving to that, when you get sick or it's the ending of your life, we need grace to carry you into heaven, so we need another right that goes there. But the, the sin and the struggles that are in front of us, when we do sin and we need to confess or we need reconciliation, we need to go into penance that gives a person grace from sinning, and so there's certain things you need to do to keep 
this grace continually in front of you that you have to keep doing to get this grace in front of you. And then not only but that, we have these things called the holy orders. This is the holy orders or people who God has given special power to as instruments of God to give saving grace to the church. So like the priest is the only one who can make by the ringing of the bell, making the grace and communion there. And so we ring it because we continually need to keep getting this grace over and over and over again. And then last but not least, we have in the seven sacraments, the sacrament of matrimony, we're being married in the church. You need to be done in the church because that is what saves. So all of these teachings, and you could spend literally your lifetime talking about these, all of these teachings were formed not because the Word of God said it, but by years of tradition after tradition after tradition. Like, the Word of God does talk about marriage, and it makes a really big deal about marriage, but it does not attach marriage to saving grace. And before you know it, you start adding all of these things onto this. And we wonder why then, which I don't think we should really wonder why, we have such very zealous Catholics in our, in our, in our community. It's because there's a list of things that must be done that you can do in order to be right with God. So if you run into a true follower of Catholicism, they will be very zealous because they really truly believe, because they are taught that if you don't do these sacraments, your soul is at stake. And I would argue they're missing the whole concept of grace. Because many years ago when Martin Luther was wrestling, do you, you see why this happens? Martin Luther comes in and says, you're saved by grace alone. And he says, literally, Ephesians says this. And then the Catholic Church goes, whoa, 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 back up, back up, back up. No, 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 no. We've got the sacraments that keep the grace there. And Martin Luther is going to say, no, 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 you're not doing this. And literally, like, you know, heads will roll over this topic. And so many years ago, this is very interesting, Martin Luther stood before his students one day and he said this, which are fighting words when, you're, when you just take, I took all that time to go through the sacraments. Listen to what he says. He says this, we are saved not because of our merits, Salvation is given out by the pure mercy of the promising God. I mean, that not only, that was a blow, not at just one of the sacraments, that was a blow at the very knee, the very core of these sacraments that the Roman Catholic Church was saying, these are the things you must do in order to maintain your status and grace before God. All right, and so I know I spent a little bit of time on that. I want to spend some time on then. So what is grace? Is it something that we get by just doing certain activities? Is it something that we get, that I get grace literally as long as I take an infant and I put them under the water and I bring them back out? Do they get grace? Is there certain like grace that just happens by getting a kid wet? Number two, we're going to look at the truth. Grace, biblically defined grace, is unmerited favor from God. That word unmerited is huge because if you can merit grace, by the pure definition of grace, it is no longer grace. But the Roman Catholic Church had taught many in the Dark Ages, and many had been taught that grace is a thing or a force that can be given. Grace is something that I can dispense. And you see that in one of the prayers of the Roman Catholic Church. Hail Mary, and what is she full of? She's filled with grace, as if there's a force that is there. And we're saying, no, grace is a gift of God. It is not a force. It is not a thing. Reformers would say that grace was the personal kindness of God by which he does not merely enables us, but actually rescues and freely gives himself to us. Grace is the kindness of God, that he does not merely enables us, but actually rescues us and freely gives of himself. It is an active work of God. 
So here's what we need to spend some time on. Because here is sadly what the evangelical church, for I would say the last several hundreds of years, have done. We have talked about grace and salvation and then just moved on. We have talked about these things about salvation and we just glance off of it and we forget that if we are ignorant of God's saving work and salvation, the Christian faith and the promises of God are destroyed. If faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, is not taught and understood by the church, the question is, and how can we be certain that God will accomplish His saving work of gathering in His bride? If somehow salvation hinged on you, how can we be certain that God said, one day I will return and redeem a people unto Myself and gather them in? It is salvation by grace and grace alone. The reason and the cause of your saving faith in Christ is the grace of of God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. It's one of those where, as Brian last week talked to us about faith alone, in Hebrews chapter 12, we see a beautiful passage of Scripture that just, I would call it, knocks the ball out of the park, if you can use that in baseball terms. Hebrews 12, 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which easily tangles us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What we see here. We, are, we see the phrase that we talked, for by grace you are saved through faith. And some people will say, well, wait a minute. It's my faith that I had that was the thing that saved me. It was the faith that somehow was the causal agent to give me grace. Well, the Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews, destroys that argument where he literally says, looking unto Jesus, the founder. That word founder there also is the same word, the author of the supplier. He is the one that gave you the faith to believe. And not only did he give you the faith to believe, the text goes on to say, and he is the perfecter of that faith. He is the finisher, the completer of that faith. You did not earn this grace somehow by exercising this faith. What you found is, it is the grace of God that even gave you the faith to believe. That is why you do not earn grace by doing the right sacrament or the right ritual. You do not earn grace at all or it would not be grace. Because if somehow you could earn grace, it would put you on a higher footing than those who had not earned grace. And that would somehow put you then on a righteous footing that somehow you earn God's favor, which is grace is unmerited favor. Because when Jesus was down here on earth in Matthew 19, 3, he literally said to the people, I have not come for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. The people that think they're good enough don't need a savior. But what I've called to do is call those who understand that they are in desperate need of God. Luther in one of his arguments, once said this, The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. All right, what we didn't do is God did not say, All right, listen, I'm going to die on the cross. You make yourself good enough. And when you get to the point of being good enough, then I'll come down and redeem you. No, what we see is the Savior coming down, and because of grace, what we see is the shepherd of the sheep. What does he do? He doesn't say to that one sheep that's out there, listen, you come down, when you get halfway, I'll meet you. 
The shepherd leaves the 99, and what does he do? He's the one actively pursuing the lost sheep, bringing the lost sheep back into the fold. He doesn't say to the sheep, do your best, find your way. No, he says to the one that is far gone, I will go and pursue after you and bring you unto myself, that where I am there you may be. It's interesting, too, as we look at these things, as we look at chapter 12, notice it says, therefore you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. What are these people witnessing of? The faith that God has given them in a life of grace, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. They are all witnessing to Christ and Christ alone. But what we see is a phenomenal example of a group of people who understand that all of it is Christ and Christ alone. But we can say that. We can take both of these here. We can, we can look at the, the Roman Catholic Church and say, you have destroyed grace. And we can look at biblical grace, but then the hard part is the struggle of living in the here and now in the Christian walk. Because what are we all at the beginning reminding ourselves of? I like to earn it. I like to work for it. This free stuff is not necessarily there, or is it? So here's something I want us to take a walk down. I know I've been taking a lot of walk down the world of history, but you are here today because of history. All right, I'm going to bring up the past a little bit, but your way of thinking is because of history. What I'm going to explain to you right now is a time of history that was not the greatest in our world. There's a lot of times in the past, and uh, I don't have anything against the French, but they're really good at bad ideas, all right? And one of the things that came from that is the, the, the Enlightenment era. The Enlightenment came, and there was a guy in the Enlightenment named Voltaire who did a horrible understanding of this. And so what had happened was this, and the Enlightenment was happening right around the time the United States was forming. All right, and so while the Enlightenment era is coming about man's freedom, that man has free, should not be under the authority of anyone, we need to explore our humanity and our freedom, all of a sudden you have some of the biblical hanging that was taught during the Puritans, and they clash in the American culture, and so you get certain rights that they're going to say are from God, but because the Enlightenment's coming through, clashing against Christianity, we're not going to say God, we'll say things like providence, or the maker, or things like that. So if you read some of our early American writing, they're talking about providence, they're talking about all these other things, because the Enlightenment was bashing against Christianity at this time. But what has happened, the Enlightenment has just steamrolled over, and Christianity has just fallen by the wayside to the power of the Enlightenment, not because the Word of God is not powerful, but because mankind will run to a point where if we can say God is irrelevant, and man is the ultimate, we will do that. And so what has happened then in our culture, we've continually pushed God aside and we continually have praised man. And before you know it, maybe God is not so angry. Maybe God is not so holy. Maybe man has more to do with than what we think. And we can so quickly replace a love for God to a love of self. And we get 100 years down the line and all of a sudden we have, you have your truth and I have my truth. And how am I ever going to tell you that your truth is wrong because I have my truth? And we all tip our hats and say, thank you, the Enlightenment era, because you have really helped us out. I'm saying that jokingly. And then we get the impact from the Eastern side of the world, where we get Eastern ways of thinking coming into this boiling pot of America, where we have a symbol that I would say, sadly, many Christians view 
think that this concept is biblical, but they will say it's not, but they act like it is. If you've ever seen a yin-yang symbol, a yin-yang symbol is a circle where there's one side that's black and there's another side that's white with a little squiggly line in the middle and the side that's black has a little white dot and the side that's white has a little black dot and what that teaches is that inside of everyone who is evil there's a little bit of good and inside everyone who is good there's a little bit of evil now that kind of maybe sounds ish biblical but i'm going to hopefully you know so what we do is we take yin yang right and here's how we present the gospel if i can manipulate that little bit of good in that person, fan it with a little biblical kerosene, get them emotional enough, and I can fan that, all of a sudden that person will come forward down an aisle because we fan that little bit of little good in them that is intrinsically there, and they come down, and what we need to do then is, while the, while the iron's hot, you know, strike while the iron's hot, let's get them to, let's get them to say something. Let's get them to say a prayer. Let's get them to all of the other stuff. And so now we have a whole group of people that were emotionally drawn into something because we're using emotion as the draw-in factor instead of actually the Word of God. And so now all these people have recited something and we say, hey, once you've recited it, you're good to go, right? You, did, you said the thing. You were automatically there because once you say these words, because sinner's prayer is after God helps those who help themselves. All right, and so as long as you said the right words... Whether you honestly meant it or not, the rest of your life, you're good to go. And we give people a false sense of security in their Christian walk, and we give them a false sense of what does it literally mean to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. We say, is like, listen, it was there all along inside of you. And then we get to passages of Scripture that are incredibly clear, that destroy this whole thinking. Mark 10.8, where a man comes up and says, hey, good teacher, and he says, whoa, Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Then we get into other passages of Scripture in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and somewhat fall short of the glory of God. No, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. There's no little yin and your yang in there, all right? And so there's no good inside. And then you get over to Ephesians chapter 2 where it says we are dead in sin. This last week I had the privilege of being at a funeral. And there was no little bit of life inside that person that we were trying to fan into life again. They were dead. And dead means dead. And what dead people were really good at doing, but they weren't at this time, nothing. They are really good at doing nothing. They just laid there and we talked about them. This is spiritual death. We don't, I didn't say to the person, listen, you just wait long enough and hard enough, we're going to sing a couple of really emotional songs here. Maybe it's going to happen. No. Not at all. The same thing, too, when it comes to our Christianity. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. And all of a sudden, the enlightenment, all this other kind of stuff's compounding at us and what we want to say. I earned it somehow. But you don't understand, Pastor Tim. It was by, by me, I actually heard the message and I walked down the aisle. I'm going to say, just walk down the aisle is what saves you? Isn't that literally what the Catholic Church just said? Just walk, just do. And we sit here and say, saved by grace and grace alone. You cannot earn it, but we all want to. That's one of the great wrestles of the Christian faith. We want to be the one that somehow I earned my salvation, and what we will find is it is by grace and grace alone. But then not only are we saved by grace alone, it really comes at us once we are saved, once we fall on the mercy and grace of God. We still like to keep ourselves saved by a thing I like to say, performance-based Christianity. 
Because we will stand and say, no, we're not going to stand with the Roman Catholic sacraments. And here's what we know, 1 John 2, 15 and 17 reminds us that to be friends with the world is literally to be an enemy with God. And so what do we say? I don't want to be at all a friend of the world. I want to be a friend of God because He's created in me this desire to love Him. Well, then how do I show it? Well, this is what sadly the church, the evangelical church, tried to say. In the 1990s, sorry, the 1900s through basically the 1990s, there was a rise of preaching that no longer focused on the doctrines and the theology, like we would talk about the holiness of God, His character and who He is. What they did was they hopped right over that and started preaching moral living. And so what happened was Christianity was not the roots of all of this, the holiness of God, His justice, regeneration, faith and grace and mercy. What we did was we went right into holy living. Where... Separation from the world and separation to God was defined by all external actions. Where sin then was actually a substance. And I'll give you an example where this plays out, and we all wrestle with it. All right, immediately, if I were to put right now here a drop of alcohol on this right in front of me, is that sin? I mean, the Bible's very clear about drunkenness and all these other things. But if we're not careful, all of a sudden, alcohol in and of itself becomes sin, not the use of it or anything else there, just one drop. And so what happens is this. If we're not careful, we say, well, we don't even want to have anything to do with alcohol because alcohol in and of itself is sin. If you're teaching that just a, like literally the substance is sin. And this is how it plays out, which is amazing. So... If I don't want to be part of that, and so I'm adding external teaching to this, that anyone who drinks alcohol must then be what? Sinning, right? And even the places where alcohol is are wrong and sinful. So that means I can't go to any place that serves alcohol. And you start adding to it. And if I see one of you drinking alcohol, that immediately means that you're a sinner. And not only am I questioning your ability to follow God, what am I also questioning? Your salvation. Or we fall off the other line. Well, I'm free to, to do whatever I want to do. And so I'm bellying up to every bar and just saying we live by grace and grace alone. And before you know it, I'm, dying, I'm falling off the other side. And, but you notice what we do is what do we do? We love to run to the extremes. Or sin can become a movement or a sound is another way of putting it. Or sin can even be a location. As if this spot here, just by just the place in and of itself, is sin. Sadly, though, the standard and the moving of morals of the world is not the, the Word of God. The moving and the morals of the world sadly becomes the world and its standards. And so what happens is, whatever the world, and we've talked about this before, whatever the world did maybe 50 years ago is that we would have condemned, now it's okay because it's old and acquainted and we forget about all of it and we all of a sudden, the songs at one time you were not allowed to listen to, now you can listen to, and the question was if they were wrong then, then they were wrong here. But again, if we're not wrestling that we are saved by grace and grace alone and we make our, our salvation all externally action-based, we have, are devoid of these teachings. So you are saved by grace and grace alone. And in order to stay then on God's good side, right, what are we sadly taught? 
all of these external things. So like I'll give you an example then, we'll, go, we'll just pick on the alcohol one for a moment. So instead of dealing with the I want to fit in because our culture, if you've been in two minutes in the state of Wisconsin, people like to drink, right? Like duh, okay? And it's all around us and it's everywhere we go. We would, it's easier to just say, you shall never drink. God says that not. What's the harder part? To look into the law and the holiness of God and start digging into your own spiritual walk and start looking and saying, we have been called to be different. We have been called to have a testimony before this lost and dying world and wrestling with that instead of just doing the easy of just fitting in. And so we can battle back and forth. And I'll, I'll give you some of the other examples of where this sadly plays out. It plays out when the burden of morality starts to get heavier and heavier and heavier on our hearts. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and we struggle. Because what we do is this, and this is one of the, the own, my struggles of even growing up. So I grew up in a Christian culture. We talked about purity. We talked about purity all the time, being pure when you, when you, in your life, in your actions with the opposite sex, and all of those things that were given there. But if, I, if you weren't careful, this is the way it was communicated. Just don't touch a young lady. And I'm like, but I want to. Don't touch them. Because touching them is evil. All right? And it's evil, 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 evil. We did not talk about the heart. We didn't talk about anything else. If I held Allison's hand, we were committing the most heinous sin that we could possibly have committed by me holding her hand. And so there was no boundary other than one wall. Purity. And so now all of a sudden I wrestle with this. I held her hand, and you might as well, we could have been running down the road, born to be wild. We are just the rebels of all rebel can be. And all of a sudden I started to go, wait a minute. Is everything else that I was bought? And so then what we do is, since we don't really know how to encourage kids, we don't want to talk about the theology and the greatness of who God is. What we do then is we take these teens and we put them all in a room and we say, how many of you want to be pure because pure is good? Here, put on a ring, make a commitment, and all these kids are putting on rings, making commitments, and all of a sudden they're wrestling with us. We have not talked about who God is. We haven't even talked about the greatest commandment of all time, which is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we've all made it external things, and we never talked about Marriage and purity are a beautiful, wonderful thing in marriage. We've just made it all evil. And what God has created for good, we have exploited and made it for evil. And all of a sudden, before you know it, I realize that if I am doing all of these purity actions, that must mean that I must be what inside that? Pure. But I knew my own heart and realized, I don't know anything left from pure. And the only reason that I didn't grab her hand sooner was because there was someone watching me over my shoulder, not because of my relationship with God. And so what we can do so quickly then is we forget that God's Word has given us wonderful things. And so we, the two sides are actions only or cheap grace. The actions only are the external actions we do. Like I'll give an example. Let no wholesome thing come out of your mouth. The Bible commands us about our speech. Okay, and so what we can do then, if we are not understanding that my merit and my standing before God is not grace, is not according to grace, I can sit there and I can say, it doesn't matter what I say, I'm good. 
Or we can give us a laundry list of all of the unwholesome things instead of going back to what God's Word has told us. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might. And as we start to do that, our hearts and our minds are turned back to Hebrews 11, and we look at these people of the faith, and we look at what they did. You look at what Moses said when he was confronted with all the pleasures of Egypt, all of this stuff. He had a comparison battle where he compared the fleeting pleasures of Egypt to be nothing compared to the greatness and glory of God. And so what do we do? We don't elevate external actions. What we do is we elevate the love and the desire to love God even more in our hearts. We elevate the holiness and the character of God. And as we start to do that, it starts to change our heart and our mind. And so when we see the commandments of God, they are beautiful and they are sweet and we love them. And we don't get into all these little nitpicky arguments that we love to nitpick. We love to take literally the pepper and try to separate it all the time instead of saying, where is your heart? Where are you following after God? Now, there are commandments that we need to be calling one another to. There are things that you're saying like, do not commit adultery. You see someone committing adultery, you don't say, hey, we're grace, we're grace here. You know, like, I... No, you are called to rebuke. You take the word of God and say, you are making a mockery of Christ in the church because your marriage symbolizes Christ in the church. This is not something we take lightly because God literally said that marriage is a symbol of Christ in the church and you don't want to defame Christ in the church in front of others. These are the things we must take seriously. But the saved by grace alone, we love to add to the list instead of loving God with all of our heart. And then as we see the commandments of God, we will see them and delight in them above all. And that will cause us, our hearts, to want to obey them, to want to follow them out of a love for God, not out of somehow I'm earning the grace of God, because you could never earn the grace of God, no matter how hard you tried. Now, What do you do with the wrestling of conscience and conscience sake? Just because you can does not mean you ought. Because the rule of thumb that I would give you, which I believe is very clearly taught in Scripture and the principles of Scripture, is you reflect as a person of God, as a Christian, you reflect Christ wherever you go. Start with that, remembering that. So that means for you that are on Monday when you head off to work, when people see you, are you working as unto the Lord? Or are you working unto men? Because if you're working unto the Lord, and you start to grasp that I am saved by grace and grace alone, and all of a sudden, that boss or that employee who comes and just gets right underneath of your skin. You see right by them. And you see that God and His sovereignty have placed them in your life. And you work unto the Lord and not unto men. Because grace alone is a liberating Michael Reeves in his book says, Grace alone is the only message of ultimate liberation. The message with the deepest power to make humans unfurl and flourish. 
By grace alone, all who know themselves as failures can now not just a bit of spiritual enabling from God, helping them do better. They can know a whole new victorious identity in Christ. They can know assurance, relief from guilt, and sweet intimacy with the Almighty Father who cares for them. We're going to be closing here with a song. If you can, you can turn in your hymn books to uh, 318. Well, on page 318, uh, they have uh, taken some of the, um, the verbiage of this song. And remember, just because there are five verses in the hymn book does not mean that there are only five verses of the song. Many of them, I think Amazing Grace is like 20 verses. We only sing a couple of them. Uh, and you'll see in the hymn book here uh, some different uh, words. And so I'd encourage you as you're singing... The song, uh, please watch the words as you sing, because there's a little bit of a uh, of an interesting of a, just different words along the way, especially verse two. But isn't it interesting? I love verse four. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thy glorious love brought forth the day I woke. The dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. The chains of sin fell off. The heart was free. And what does the heart do when God redeems and saves? It is seen by obeying what God has called. And how is that done? When we feast and look at that amazing love, how can it be? That thou, my God, should die for me. Because as I would go back to all of those things, just because you can does not mean you ought. When we start realizing that we have been saved and redeemed by loving God, we would say, far be it from me that I would draw any attention away from Christ and Christ alone. So then we can say, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him and mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. And the joy, then, of living by grace. What do we have? Bold I approach the eternal throne. And I claim the crown, not because it's me, but through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? This song here was penned many years ago, but it so speaks the truth, because one of the wonderful things about the truth, it does not have an expiration date. Let me pray and then let's sing this from, the deep, from our deep heart. Dearly Father, thank you that we are saved by grace and grace alone. We can stand here as redeemed followers of you in all of who you are. Dearly Father, help our lives to be obedient reflectors of your great grace. As David said, I love your law, I love your word, and why do we do that? Because we see that we have been redeemed to obey. Not because our obedience has caused us to be redeemed, but because your great love for us has enabled us now to live a life that is God-honoring before you. May your praise always be on our lips. We pray these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen.